Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a non-profit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for joining us. Aaron Meyer is a professor at INSEAD and author of The Culture Map, a must-read for anyone contemplating or doing business globally. She spoke at the World Affairs Council on August 12th. Her work focuses on how the world's most successful global leaders navigate the complexity of cultural differences in a multicultural environment. Again, thank you so much for being here, Aaron. Thank you. Perhaps a good way to launch our brief conversation will be to ask you to comment on what Pedro Pina head of brand solutions at Google wrote in commenting on your new book, The Culture Map. Commerce may be global, but culture isn't. What does that mean? Well, I think often there's an assumption that because the world is globalizing, that cultural differences have become less important. And I would say that, in fact, it's anything but the case. So instead, what I found is that as we are working more over virtual media like email and telephone, that we're all in contact with people from other countries. And this may have all sorts of impacts without us realizing it. I'll just give you a quick example. Uh, I was working with an American a while ago who did something very comfortable in the U.S. at the end of a an, an, uh, telephone call, which was reiterate what they had decided, you know, by saying something like, I understand that you will be doing this, and I will be doing you know, that. I understand this correctly. Exactly. Right. And then putting in writing what had been decided when working with an Indian colleague. And the Indian felt that this person was clearly showing that, he did, that the American didn't trust him. And this is the type of thing that if you have a little bit of awareness, you can easily make some adjustments to your behavior in order to build the trust necessary to get the job done. And if you're not aware of it, you can very simply over email or telephone call erode the trust that you need in order to be successful. You know, Aaron, one of the things here in in Dallas-Fort Worth is our airport. It's so key. We talk about it as being the economic engine. How important and this is, you know, I'm asking to generalize, is personal meetings versus Skype and Internet, and particularly Skype where we can do these face-to-face communications over, over the Internet. It's a really important question. So one of the things that I look at is how trust is built differently in different parts of the world. And with that research, we look at the difference between what I call cognitive and effective trust. So cognitive trust is trust from your brain. It's like I see you do good work and you're on time and you're high quality stuff, so I trust you. Then we have what we call effective trust, which is trust from your heart, which is like I have a friendship with you and a personal connection with you. I feel empathy for you, so I trust you. Mm -hmm. And if you look at that continuum of cultures that are more focused on cognitive trust at work uh, versus more focused on effective trust at work, the U.S. falls as the strongest cognitive trust culture in the world, meaning that we don't rely as much on other cultures on building that effective personal connection. And it is true that it's hard to build effective trust over email or over Skype. 
It's easier over telephone, and it's a lot easier face-to-face, and it's easiest when we're socializing. We're sharing meals, we're sharing a drink. So I think one important lesson for American business people to learn is that when you work with people in other countries, you have to try to find ways to build that personal connection. And that does, yes, mean leaving email. Well, that's good news for the airport. (laughs) Uh, Well, let's talk about China. You have written an enormous amount about China. In fact, a wonderful article that I would encourage our listeners to read is China Myths, China Facts that appeared in the Harvard Business Review. What are the most striking mistakes or myths that Americans have about China and China Chinese have about us? I think maybe I'll give you an example that I start with in my book, which is that we feel, I think, as Americans often that the Chinese are shy. And that is a total misconception that comes from a speech pattern difference in our two countries. So in the U.S., in in school, we get this participation grade. So people are used to really jumping in on top of one another, uh, not leaving any space in the discussion. And the Chinese learn in school that you should listen very carefully, wait for a pause, and then you can give your own input. I had this situation when I was first starting out in this field where I was giving a training program for a couple moving to China, and I was working with a Chinese business person who was supposed to assist me in the program. I would explain the concept, and he was supposed to provide practical examples. And during the program, I kept looking at him. I'd explain the concept, and I'd look at him for his input, and he didn't say anything. So I just kept talking. I did that for three hours. And I was panicked. I thought, oh, he has nothing to say. This is horrible for the clients. And after three hours, I I looked at him and I said, Bo, do you have any input? And he said, oh, thank you very much, Aaron. And he opened up his uh, notebook and I saw that he had 20 pages of prepared notes that he'd brought with him. And in that situation in China, you're expected to wait quietly for someone to call on you. So we hear so much about the question of innovation in China. So does this tendency inhibit innovation? I wouldn't say that has anything to do with with, uh, innovation. That just has to do with the way that we we speak. Um, I think innovation has more to do with how comfortable cultures are with risk. And that's actually really interesting because the Chinese have changed dramatically on that scale. So with that Chinese myths article that you're talking about, one of the things that we found was that older generation Chinese uh, really seek to avoid failure and are, let's say, risk avoidant. Uh, But newer Chinese are even more comfortable with risk than we are in the United States. That's a big change. And again, I want to encourage everyone to go to the Harvard Business Journal to to find the link for this article. It was very interesting. You know, in in Dallas, we have so many large uh, high-tech companies, Texas Instruments, Dell, just to name a few. And whenever I go and visit their campuses, I'm always struck by the diversity in the workforce. Uh, I don't see very many women, uh, however, but how should U.S. companies um, adapt better to having their teams work across national boundaries, uh, national boundaries across the oceans, but also just across the hallway? 
Well, I think one thing that we need to start to recognize when you're in these really international organizations is that if you're leading a company like that or you're leading a global team, you need to think not just about how will I perceive that culture and how will that culture perceive me, but how do those different cultures perceive one another? And that's what I do in my book. I present this, this map that helps you to tease out how different cultures fall relatively to one another. I'll just give you a quick you example. Really have a methodology with your book. Yeah, I have these eight scales that break down culture into different pieces, like how you give feedback differently in different parts of the world, or how we um, we schedule meetings in different parts of the world. So you have these eight different different scales, and then you can look at how the countries fall in relationship to one another. That's really important. So far, a, a while ago, for example, I was working with a team that was made up of just British and French people, mm-hmm. and I asked the British individuals, what's it like to work with the French? And the British said, oh, you know the French, they're so disorganized and chaotic and always late. A little bit later, a group from India joined the same team. I asked the Indians, what's it like to work with the French? They said, oh, Aaron, you know the French, they're so rigid and inadaptable and overly focused on punctuality. Um, So these are the types of things that you can tease out. That happens because on one of my scales that looks at time orientation, you can see that France falls between the, uh, the UK and India. So that relativity is really critical now for global organizations. That's very helpful. You know, often I'm, I'm asked and at the World Affairs Council, we have meetings with college students, and they're saying, I want to have a career in international business. I want to work all over the world. What do you feel is the best preparation for young people who want to succeed in the global environment? Well, living in another country is very, very helpful. I would say it's difficult to develop the type of empathy necessary to manage a global team or a global organization if you haven't been in the minority. So go and live in another country, or if you can't go and live in another country, at least spend a lot of time traveling. And when you're traveling, uh, try to put yourself in the shoes of the people who live there and see how they see you. I think that's a skill we all need to work on, is recognizing how other cultures perceive us. And don't you think Americans continue to be at a disadvantage because of our lack of language proficiency? I think that language, the lack of language uh, proficiency is particularly dif- uh, difficult because it means that we speak too fast. <laughs> what I mean by that is that... Um, Today, the global language is English. So whether you are in Korea or whether you are in France, people will speak English in business. But Americans don't speak clearly enough. And I think that that happens because we haven't spent enough time learning other languages ourselves. But if you need to learn one other language, I just would choose global English. Well, I want to thank you again for being with us on Global IQ. Aaron Meyer is the uh, author of The Culture Map, which was published by Public Affairs in May of this year. So continued success, and thanks again for being with us. It was a pleasure. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.